Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good people from around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. The only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 320. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. And I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. And last week's episode was truly crowdsourced investigation at work when you brought Paul and Jill on to discuss the case. The episode prompted even more discussion on our social media platforms, from Toxic Kiosk walking speed to the keys being returned to fingerprints on the knife, among a host of other topics. So today, let's dig into what listeners are talking about. Let's start with Kiosk pace while taking your morning walk around Spruce High School. Here's an email from Sarah. Sarah writes, Hi, Bob. There was some debate about the timeline due to not knowing how fast Kiel was walking. Paul stated that average walking speed is three to three and a half miles per hour, but to do it in 15 minute laps, Kiel would have to be closer to four miles per hour. I remember in an earlier episode, a woman who walked with Kiel occasionally, can't remember who, said that she didn't walk with her that much because she couldn't keep up. I guess this would lead me to believe Kiel was walking a bit on the faster side. Just a thought. Bob, what do you think of Kiel's pace? Is it really that important? I know that it helps us pinpoint where she was and where her assault happened, but is there more to it? I don't think that we'll be able to exactly pinpoint the precise pace that Kiao was walking, but I think that it is important because in order for us to solve this thing, the first thing we have to do is to reconstruct the crime scene, or reconstruct that morning, to try to figure out where she was, at what time was she passing by certain things, and when she could have come into contact with certain people in certain places. As far as the pace goes, I think I had another listener who said that they were, um, they, they may have emailed or might have been on this discussion page or maybe even Twitter. I think it was Twitter actually that said they're short. They're, this person was like five foot four. And they said that, you know, walking at four miles an hour is really fast for someone that was Kiao's height, which was around five foot tall. And that's true. Uh, but we do have some evidence kind of backing up the 15 minute walk timeline. And that is number one, like you said, or as the, the listener here had said, Kiao's friends, Constant, said that she couldn't walk with her because she couldn't keep up with Kiao. Uh, and we also have, which hasn't been released here because they wanted to be off the record, but we have some off-the-record sources that told us that Kiao used to really almost speed walk and that she used to time her laps. And her target, believe it or not, was between 12 and 15 minutes per lap, according to them, from what they remember from 26 years ago. 
But basically, with all the information that we have, as far as people saying they couldn't keep up with her, and she's walking for exercise, and this person saying that she was timing her laps, indicates to us that these are not just leisurely strolls Kia was taking. These would be speed walks. And so I think the 15-minute timeline is probably pretty close to accurate. And it does fit when we look at the timelines that we know have happened. So we know that Gladys Blanford saw Kiao sometime that morning. Now, her timeline is the weakest because it said between, I think, 7.05 and 7.15 or between 7 and 7.15. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it says, it, let's talk about that for a second, too, because it said from 7 to 7.15, but she said it was at 7.05 when she saw the unidentified black male walking in the neighborhood. So it's a little odd that it, it almost not sure if it was before or after. But that just goes to show you that it's hard to track down timeline. So hers is pretty loose, but somewhere around 7-ish in the morning, I would guess if Kiao left her house at 7, then she's very likely walking past that intersection around 7.05. Um, so I think that it's somewhere around there is lap number one. Now, Mr. Espinoza, he had a much more accurate timeline when he said it was at 3.20 when he saw Kiao walk past. Now, we don't know much about that. What are his anchors and his indicators? Meaning, does he leave for work every morning at exactly 7.20, and that's when he saw her, and therefore that 7.20 number is accurate. He didn't say around or a range of time. He said at 7.20. But that would make sense, given a pace of about 15-minute laps. If she left her house right about 7, she crosses that intersection around 7.05, which is about when Gladys Blanford says she saw her, and then she comes back around at 7.20. And then if we add into that the school workers, who all said they saw her in front of the school at 7.30, Again, it fits with our 15-minute pace. If she had walked past the Espinosa 720, she would have been around the school around 730, and that puts her right back to the Espinosa's right around 735, which is right about where I believe the assault likely took place. So as far as what you were asking, Mike, if the timelines really matter, I think that they do. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think that we can get entirely accurate because we're dealing with witness statements and time. And it's very easy to say this happened at 620 when what you actually meant was it happened around 620 or in a range of time. Uh, unless there are certain anchors, like I said, which we don't know. You know, did Mr. Espinosa leave for work every day at exactly 720? Then that time becomes much more accurate. Okay, now I want to bounce over to the keys again. I know we've talked about the keys endlessly on this show, but I think this one deserves to be covered too. Mr. Ibley Blue tweets, Did anyone ever question the fact that the keys don't have an address on them? And how did the person who returned the keys know where she lived? Now, we've talked about this a lot, but I want to follow it up with this thought, Bob. Listener Heidi writes to us, With Simon's next door, I get the feeling like the girlfriend would return the keys, knowing it was the next door neighbor's. And here she's referring to Ronnie Blackwell's girlfriend being Kiao's neighbor. Bob, do you think it's likely that Ronnie's girlfriend returned the keys? I don't know if it's likely, but that brings me way back to when we had Jim Clemente first profile the crime scene. And I asked him about the keys. I don't know if you remember what he said, but he said that he thinks that the most likely culprit to return the keys. Now, and this is way before we knew anything about Rosie Simon's daughter, but he said that a likely would be a girlfriend of one of the attackers. Right. Who, I remember who, that. Yeah. Yeah. Who would feel guilty and bring it back. So now we know that Ronnie Blackwell, who doesn't have an alibi for that morning, he was missing in that neighborhood. And there were some Crime Stopper tips that came in about him because he was talking a lot about the crime and a lot of the details. As it turns out, his girlfriend was Kiao's neighbor, which would certainly fit right in with what Jim Clemente said that was, say, now this is just a, for example, say Ronnie Blackwell is one of the culprits, or the culprit, maybe he acted alone, and he comes back with the keys, 
to his girlfriend's house and she's you know trying to maybe protect cover up for her boyfriend but she feels guilty about the fact that she has the keys and it's her neighbor she knew Kiao. she knows kenneth she knows kirby and she would be one that could pop over there and put the keys back in the box i think it's an, an entirely possible and and to be honest i hadn't put much thought i've, I've been trying to really put the keys out of my mind because they generate so much uh yeah, hot discussion, discussion. yeah, yeah. Uh, but when you asked that question, it was just, it just clicked me that it was exactly what Jim Clemente had said months ago was that it, he thinks that it would be likely that the, the, one of the assailants, the offender's girlfriend, wife, whatever, uh, would return the keys out of guilt, that that would be a behavior that he would expect. So um, some new lights are being shined on the case since we had the conversation with Paul and Jill. And uh, definitely a lot more theories are coming into play now than there were just a few weeks ago. All right, now let's move to discussion over the knife found in Kiao's hand. Helen writes to us, The knife thing has always bothered me. If we assume that the knife was used against her, why would the suspects take the time to wipe it down and put it back in her hand? Why not just take it? In cases when a gun is used, it will sometimes be placed in the victim's hand to make it look like a suicide. Not at all possible here and just silly, considering she was stabbed in her back several times. I believe if she was fighting to get out of the car, she didn't have time to pull the knife. I think she may have pulled it out as she was crawling to her final resting place, but sadly it was too late. I just don't understand the reason for putting it back in her hand. Yeah, well, one thing I think we can be assured of at this point is uh, I think we can forget about the idea that the knife was wiped down, or if it was, it wasn't wiped down very well. And that was based on, I think it was listener Kathy last week or the week before that had found in the cross-examination of Daniel Cannon when the defense attorney had asked about the fingerprint found on the knife. And it clearly stated, now in Don Watts' testimony, it just says there was nothing on the knife, there was nothing comparable. But it was in the cross-examination of Daniel Cannon where the defense attorney asked, Stephen Miller asked him, that fingerprint that you pulled off the knife, there was nothing comparable. And Cannon basically says, yeah, that's true, there's nothing to compare it to. But what it clearly indicates was that there was, in fact, a fingerprint pulled off the knife, therefore indicating it wasn't wiped down, or if it was wiped down, it wasn't very well. Uh, it would also, and now there's a lot of conjecture here since, you know, it just says there's nothing comparable. That could mean a lot of things. Yeah. Uh, it could mean that there are not enough points on it to compare it to anything, or it wasn't a good print. Uh, but it could also mean that there's a print that does not match. Kiao Gove and does not match Jesse Eldridge or Troy Eldridge or anybody, Kenneth Gove, anybody else that would be involved. Because keep in mind, in 1991, there was no such thing as APHIS. So that fingerprint, just like in Edward Eight's case, all they can do is compare it visually to known fingerprint samples. Uh, and it didn't match any of them. So that would be something, you know, I've, I've actually alerted Allison Clayton, uh, Jesse's attorney with the Innocence Project, to this fact. And again, power of crowdsourcing, it was a listener that caught the just the minor difference in wording between Watts' testimony and Cannon's testimony, that there is, in fact, a fingerprint. And since the CIU is on board and working on the case, too, I think it's likely that we can, if we can find that fingerprint, that we can get it run through APHIS. And that's uh, much like in Edward Eight's case with the fingerprints on the phone, could bring a quick end to this. You sure. know, if, if that fingerprint comes back to, say, Kenneth Ray Williams or Ronnie Blackwell or just some other person that should not have had their fingers on Kiao and Kenneth's knife, uh, that should bring a pretty swift end to this. So hopefully they can locate that fingerprint. Okay, and while we're talking about the fingerprint, I want to read this email from a source who wants to remain anonymous but has some very thoughtful insight on the fingerprints found on the knife. The listener writes, We don't actually leave usable prints every time we touch an item. 
there are a whole bunch of factors that interact. The quality of the person's skin, how much or little perspiration or other residue is on their hands, the texture or shape of the item being touched, how much movement there is, how large the item or surface is, and then what happens to the item after it's touched, exposed to the elements, wiped off, handled by somebody else, etc. I've processed probably around 100 knives in my career, 12 years so far, and in general, prints of value aren't recovered very often. The best surface is the smooth metal blade, but you don't usually hold it by the blade. Most handles are curved and have some sort of texture. I forget if this knife had a wooden handle, if so, those are particularly bad because of the wood grain texture. In my opinion, not finding her prints on the knife tells you nothing about whether it was hers or whether she held it that morning. This is actually what I've testified about most often, explaining negative results. To counter the misconception that we always leave prints when we touch something. Is one possible explanation that it was wiped off? Yeah, but I think it's just as likely that it was a bad surface for prints. I can also say I don't ever think I've gotten a print of value on a key, and I've processed quite a few of those too. It's just such a small area, and again, usually has a texture or cutouts of writing that can interfere. Well, wow, that's some really good. So th- this person is anonymous, but obviously this is a law enforcement yeah. officer of some kind that yep. works in evidence collection. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, that, so that's great information for everybody to know. Then it's awesome that we have a listener with some background on this that's listening to the show and is participating. There's your answer right there. So we know a couple of things that we didn't know a couple weeks ago. Number one, we know that there was, in fact, a fingerprint found on the knife. And then we also know from this listener that a lack of fingerprints doesn't necessarily mean it was wiped down. It could just be that it was a bad surface for fingerprints. Uh, So I think when we couple both of those things together, we can rule out the idea that the knife was wiped down for uh, fingerprints. So then we're back to the fact that we do have a fingerprint that is, quote, not comparable. Uh, I don't remember. I think that was the exact words that were used, not comparable. Nothing comparable was found. So perhaps this listener, hopefully after they hear this Friday follow-up, could get back in touch with us again and give us some insight maybe into what exactly that could mean. Sure. Uh, so hopefully, anonymous listener, when you hear this, uh, feel free to shoot an email back and, and see if you can shed a little more light on this for us. We really appreciate it. All right. And also, Paul Day wanted to clear something up from the information discussed on the episode. On the fan page, he clarifies that Ronnie Blackwell and his girlfriend were 17 years old in 1991, not 19. And this event happened the summer before his senior year, if he had attended it. We also discovered this week that Ronnie and his girlfriend broke up sometime between Chaos Murder and March 1992. So I just wanted to clear that up on the show for Paul and to make sure everything's clarified. Yeah, and that was partially my fault, too, because I absolutely knew that, that Ronnie was 17. Mm-hmm. And during the interview, I'd asked the question, and Paul had... He actually said it. He said he's born in 74, so he's 19. And I was just, you know, shuffling papers and, and wasn't paying attention, and neither was he, and neither was Jill, and we went past it. But uh, yeah, that, that is accurate that Ronnie was, in fact, 17 years old. So it was his girlfriend between junior and senior year of high school. Uh, did not know until you just said that, that uh, they know when he and the girlfriend broke up, which will be interesting. Yeah, that was some updated information Paul put on the fan page. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, well, thanks, Paul. And I'm glad you cleared it up, too, because I did see some discussion, people asking why was the mom out looking for her runaway 19-year-old grown man? So it makes more sense yeah. that he was, in fact, not 19. He was 17. All right, let's take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll get right back to more social media. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Next, we have an email from Catherine about where Kia's attack happened. She writes, It is pretty easy to see why this murder did not occur in a car. Think about it. If you're a young man with a muscle car, would you let your buddies kill someone in the car and ruin it with blood or knife cuts? I don't think so. I think it's much more likely that owner of the car said, hey, if you want to kill her, fine, but no one is ruining my car, so they let her out and killed her on the street. So that's one side of the argument explaining why Kia wouldn't have been attacked in the car, but here's an argument for the exact opposite. Listener Lucy in an email writes, I had a question regarding Kia's stab wounds, and most notably the ones that she had on her backside. I believe one was on her buttock and one was on the back of her thigh. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I seem to remember in the earlier episodes there was a mention of these two wounds being somewhat confusing as to how they were inflicted. Do you think they could have been inflicted if she was trying to get out of the car and her backside was exposed to the inside of the car where they could have been stabbing at her? This might explain those wounds. Also, I think I remember there was a mention from an expert that she might have been sitting down where she received her frontal stab wounds. Do you think she could have been attacked in the car? So you have two different outlooks here, Bob. Both have supporting evidence. What do you think? You know, I don't know. I think that the attack could have at least started in a car. I believe personally that I think the the wound patterns indicate that the majority of the wounds happen outside of the car. Also, considering the fact that we don't have a, you know, we've mentioned that there could have been a blood trail that got trampled and didn't get detected. But there's certainly not a big blood trail. And, And that's why as far as the wounds to her buttock and her thigh... I believe would have come towards the end, towards when she met her final resting place. And that's because those two wounds would probably, believe it or not, bleed more than any of the other wounds. Mm. Uh, Because any of the wounds to your torso, so you stab into your heart, your aorta, your lungs, so a a thin blade into that uh, cavity where your vital organs are, which all the ones in her chest and her back, well, you have exactly that. You have a cavity that can fill up with blood before it starts coming out of you. I hate to get too graphic, but, you know, even a stab, the one stab wound that went down through the lung, through the diaphragm and hit the rib, okay? Once you break that diaphragm, there's a lot of empty space inside of your torso that can fill up with blood. Now, the diaphragm, for those of you that don't know the the medical terminology, is basically a flat muscle that separates your upper chest cavity, which would be where your heart and lungs are, from your lower abdominal cavity where your stomach and all your other organs and intestines and all that are. So if you get stabbed in the chest, your blood will stay, for the most part, in your chest cavity. Uh, If you get stabbed in the abdomen, the exact opposite is true. It would stay down in the abdomen. Once you puncture that diaphragm, now you have this large cavity that can fill up with blood before it starts going anywhere else. However, the wounds to the back of the leg, these are two areas that will bleed massive amounts of blood, especially if we hit one of the major arteries in there, 
but there are a lot of arteries there that wouldn't be considered you know major, like the femoral artery, uh, that will still cause a ton of bleeding. Sure. So a stab to the buttocks, a stab to the back of the thigh are going to bleed an awful lot very, very quickly. And, and there's evidence of that. And when Watt said that he went back and looked over the clothing again, that he said the seat of the pants were just completely drenched in blood. And he surmised from that that she would have been sitting up when the attack happened. Well, I don't think that's necessarily true, as long as she ended up on her back, which she did. Uh, and remember, her knees were up in the air. That's just where the blood's going to pool on right. the clothing. But my point being, if she was, in fact, in a car, and she was stabbed as she was getting out of the car in those places, I think you would have had a noticeable blood trail leading up to that. And also you would see blood in other places on the clothing. I mean, because of course the clothing would catch some of that blood before it would hit the ground. But if she was standing upright, there would be blood all down the back of the pant legs, right? Or if she was crawling, it would be still down the back of the pant legs and then collecting more like in the back of the knee area. Uh, but the blood was all centered around kind of the buttocks, the seat of those pants, which would indicate to me that it happened close to the end of the attack. So I don't think that those wounds especially happened in a car. I think they probably happened very close to where her final resting place was. I think it's very possible the attack may have started in a car and finished in the field where she was found. I mean, you have knife wounds coming from all different directions in different depths, uh, especially a lot of them in her back were not very deep. Most of them were basically superficial. I think one actually nicked her lung, but, you know, that's still, it was only, you know, an inch and a half, two inches deep into the body. And to be honest, and, and again, I'm not locked into this theory, but when, when we're talking wound patterns and talking about a crime scene reconstruction, what makes the most sense to me right now from everything we've heard was the crawling scenario. Because if you imagine um, if she's out and she's crawling, maybe she's beat up, thrown out, she gets stabbed. Remember, she's got the, the nasty gash and then the stab in the back of her head. Uh, it may not have been enough to make her unconscious. Well, we know it wasn't enough to make her unconscious, but certainly to knock her down. Right. You know, you, you get, you know, because she's also got the, the gash the side of her face. So if somebody's, you know, hitting at her with a knife on her head and, and her face from the back, causing her to go down on the ground and then crawl. So as she's crawling, if people are like walking next to her, stabbing at her, I would I would expect to see less depth and penetration of those stab wounds because she's in a position where her body's going to give. You're naturally going to react. If something's hitting you, if you're imagine you're in a crawling position and and a blade is hitting you on your back, you're gonna flex your back. Yeah, right. You're to, gonna give Yeah, to get yeah. away from it, right? Also, in a crawling position towards the end of where she finally ended up, the stab wound to the buttock and the stab wound to the back of the thigh all of a sudden, like I said before, make perfect sense if she's crawling. And especially if this is uh, what was described as like high school kids that are just like a thrill kill, just complete jerks that are just, I mean, jerk doesn't even describe it, but I'm trying to use less vulgar <laughs> language yeah. here that I'd like to use because it's so disgusting. But if they were, you know, stabbing at her as she's crawling away, those wounds are all of a sudden lined up perfectly with that happening. But then once she's down on her back where she ends up, when she hits the ground, stops crawling and rolls onto her back. Now we have the the knife wounds to the chest that are deep penetrating cuts, you know, four and a half inches into the body, you know, all the way down into the aorta, into the lungs, into the liver. And then we have the one that was um, on the sternum 
that was stopped. It's only a, you know a half inch deep or whatever because the bone stopped it, but it put a wedge into the sternum from that knife wound. So that to me now she's on the back. She can't give any more like she could if she was crawling. And now there's there's a solid surface there for that knife to penetrate into. So as far as as hard as you stab, that's as deep it's going to go because the body's not going to give any more than the little bit of flexibility it has. So that's long answer to is she in the car or not. It was but, detailed. It was good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it just, you know, it just kind of, it, it just spurs. And, and this is kind of why when we were kind of the newer way we're doing the follow-ups is you don't tell me anything about what we're going to talk about. Yeah, right. Because uh, they spur these kind of thought processes and uh, discussions. But yeah, I, I think that, you know, an analysis of the wound patterns now, I, I don't think that most of them happen in the car. I think it's possible some of them happened in the car. I definitely don't think that the stab wounds to the back of the legs and the buttock happen in the car or close to the car. I think, you know, this is all assuming that there was, in fact, a car, which we yeah. still don't know for certain. Right, right. But I, I think her craw- the wounds are consistent with her crawling, and I think that the stab wounds to her buttock and her thigh would have happened very close to where she ended up because of the fact that there's just no kind of blood pattern on the, the clothing, according to Watts, that would indicate she was standing or crawling for very long after those wounds were inflicted. Okay, next we have an email from Zach about Sylvia's sources who told her about Kia's attack, writing, So Sylvia said that she got her information from the local Hispanics. The person who found Kia mentioned that he had Mexican neighbors at the time. Since Sylvia had info from the end of the attack, it is at least possible that these neighbors might be the ultimate source of some of the info. Just to clarify, do we know if the police ever contacted these people? And if not, is there any chance to contact them now? I know that there were concerns that Sylvia's sources might be impossible to contact if they weren't legal citizens. Even if they were legal citizens, they might have never been contacted. They might have just assumed the police figured it out without them. So I know we've talked about Sylvia's sources being undocumented immigrants, Bob. But do you think there's a chance that you might be able to find and talk to some of these people yourself? Uh, it's going to be really tough to track these people down because, like I said, they were undocumented. So there's no, you know, a lot of people were like, well, check the property records. Well, they, <laughs> they're they undocumented immigrants. They don't, the property records aren't in their names. Uh, a lot of those houses we've, we have done uh, checks on and were, you know, they were rental houses. And a lot of the people that own them are deceased. And, and yeah, Stanbury did mention that there was Hispanic neighbors. Uh, and what we do know is that the neighbors, both north and south of him, were never spoken to by the police. So I think that it's very likely that those neighbors may have been the source of the rumors. It's, it's just there's so many people that weren't contacted. For starters, I think the police were looking in the wrong place. They didn't look at all up by that stretch of woods by Apache, between Apache and September. And they, you know, they knocked on some doors and nobody answered and they just gave up on it. But as far as if we can track them down now, we do have some leads. We have some names. Unfortunately, what I'm finding is, number one, like I said, these are undocumented immigrants. Some of them are probably not in the country anymore uh, or have moved on or are still here, possibly uh, illegally even. But one of the problems is the names are just so common. You know, like, like the, for the last name Martinez. Well, look up how many Martinez's there are in the state of Texas, even just around the Dallas area. It's it's just so hard to narrow down. These are not unique names like Cesar, Jose, Juan. You know, these are some of the names that are coming up, and they're just they're just impossible to find. So, unless someone knows someone who knows someone, 
I, unfortunately, I have to say it's probably unlikely for me to find these people unless they find me, which that's where all of you come in. Anybody that may know anybody that used to live in that neighborhood uh, that could start a chain trying to find those residents from back then. That's the only way this is going to happen because there's just no way I can, through online type background searches, find people who were living as renters and who were undocumented in 1991. It's just not going to happen. Sure. Just way too many people. Yeah, it just wait, and there's just no way to narrow them down. And again, undocumented means no documents. Right. And finally, after listening to the episode, listener Bill asked, what are forensic countermeasures? Yeah, I, I saw that tweet. And I'm sorry, I don't think we ever really, we probably have explained it in previous seasons. Uh, but a forensic countermeasures are just actions that an offender would take in order to misdirect the police. I think he did use the term forensic countermeasures when we were talking about Leonard Mosley and examining uh, the trailer crime scene from season two. Right, yeah. And again, back in season one with the Anand case. Uh, and so an example of a forensic countermeasure, like we talked about, and everybody else here is familiar with the Anand case from season one. So Don told police that Hay told him that she was going to leave to go to California to visit her father. And so that is a forensic countermeasure. That is uh, a statement to the police that is intended to direct their attention elsewhere. Uh, so to send them almost on a wild goose chase or to try to explain what happened to the victim in a way that doesn't implicate you. And this is one of the many things regarding Don that makes me believe that he's a good suspect in that case, because for, we know for a fact that, hey, wouldn't have said I'm going to California to see my father because the guy in California is, in fact, not her father. And, and then you know, even says, well, I think she might have parked her car here. It's a way to communicate with the police because people believe that if I don't talk to the police, that they're going to think I'm guilty. Uh, and, and so the best way, a lot of times you'll see offenders in post-defense behavior, people will be amazed. Why did so-and-so take a polygraph test and they failed it? Or why did they give freely give DNA or fingerprints when that's what caught them? They knew their DNA was there. It's, it's a phenomenon that is just kind of crazy that, you know, if, if, say you killed somebody. You know, the, and you left the, the murder weapon on the crime scene, and there's fingerprints on it. And they say, "Hey, would you mind giving us fingerprints to compare against that?" It's amazing how many times the actual offender will be like, "Yeah, sure, you know, whatever I can do to help," and, and then they get caught because of that. Maybe they're thinking short term, like the only way out for them is if they clear those checks, and then yeah, they're free. But yeah. It, yeah, it's a weird mentality. It's just it's kind of in the moment when you surprise somebody, especially like that. But but that's not forensic countermeasure. That's just just kind of pointing out that's how people get caught. But so they will, you know, the smart thing for the offender to do would be like, I'm not talking to you and walk away. Uh, but instead, they will be they feel like that makes them look guilty. And so they will engage and talk. And then so when we were referring to forensic countermeasures, when we were talking about the Rosie Simon situation, which is what a listener here is talking about. What we were saying is the fact that just hours after the murder, it's Rosie Simons that calls and says, I saw this strange acting black male walking around the neighborhood. Like I said, one option is she saw a strange acting black male walking around the neighborhood that morning. And when we mentioned that it could be a forensic countermeasure, it would mean that, say, she knew that Ronnie Blackwell was, and this is hypothetical, this is not fact, but say she knew Ronnie Blackwell committed this murder or was involved in this murder and say it was, you know, him and, you know, three of his buddies. Well, in, in an attempt to get the police looking in a different direction, hey, I saw this black male walking around the neighborhood that exact time. So now the police are looking for 
a sole single black male instead of looking for four high school kids. So that's what a forensic countermeasure is. It's just an attempt to misdirect the police or point them in a different direction, typically done by offenders or you know someone close to the offender that's trying to help to keep them safe. Uh, in this particular case, though, I honestly doubt that, I mean, it could be, but I doubt that it was a forensic countermeasure just because uh, it, it's consistent with what other people have said. You know, Gladys Blanford also said that she saw a strange acting black male. There was, there was a couple of people that did. And and so the indication is that probably that morning at some point, Robert Moffat was taking a walk yeah. and was seen by two or three people. Um, the timing of it is interesting because it was almost exactly noon when the police went to Kirby's house to tell him that his mother had been killed. And it's 15 minutes later. I mean, the, the police could have still been there, in fact, when the neighbor calls and says, oh, by the way. Um, but I, I, I doubt that was a forensic countermeasure. My guess is that Rosie Simons just saw Robert Moffat walking that morning. Lastly, as we close this out, how was your trip to New Orleans? I really enjoyed it, and I did find out that seven days in New Orleans is about three days too many. Uh, I, I discovered that Bourbon Street is actually a vile, disgusting place. Yeah, who would have thought? Yeah, it's not like uh, Broadway in Nashville, which is kind of what I was thinking. It's like where you know the party's happening. Right. It's just it smells like urine and vomit, <laughs> and it's just some. There's just a there's a lot of maybe that's your thing, you know, urine and vomit smell, but uh, not for me. Uh, a lot of just uh, debauchery yeah. <laughs> there, which you know I, I'm too old for all that crap. But you know we we spent some time in the Garden District and went down to Frenchman Street and uh, saw a lot of things. The we were there for the Beach Body Summit. And it was this year I actually participated in the summit. I am actually a beach body coach like Becky is. I don't I, I haven't done much with it. You didn't go up on stage or anything like that. Just... No, 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 no. I mean, I, last year I went and just uh, was just hanging out in Nashville while Becky was at the summit. Okay, right. This year I actually bought tickets to the summit too, and I went to the classes because a lot of it is very relevant to what we do too. You know, they're talking about uh, social media and helping people. I mean, that's what they're they're all about. It was it was just really inspiring. I heard some really great speakers. I heard some awesome success stories, uh, both from the business perspective and mostly from people who you on their their fitness journey for their health of their mind and body how it's helped them so it was really uplifting i i really enjoyed it it was you know the the three days after it was over of just hanging out in new orleans that, that yeah. just completely exhausted me um but while i was there as always i i can never sit still and was taking some of the information in and kind of spitballing that into some new ideas as we're always trying to evolve and grow and probably next week we'll be announcing a new project from the new beginning, the NBI studios uh, that we're going to have coming up that have nothing to do with true crime, uh, but have a lot to do with what has been our, our overall mission, which is to you know do work that affects and change people's lives. So look for that. We'll talk about it here on the show. Maybe next week's Friday file, if I have a little more information on it. But look for in the very near future a new project from NBI studios. We don't have a name yet, do we? Uh, actually, I do have some ideas for some names, and we're just, we're just not sure exactly what this is going to look like. Mike is a little tense and nervous about a, a whole other project going on, but uh, we're going to be, you're going to be just fine, Mikey. Yeah, right. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll have to take your word for it. No, extra work aside, I'm looking forward to a new project, and I think that a lot of the listeners are too. Yeah, I hope so. And then as far as this Sunday's episode, you heard the teaser last week that we were going to be interviewing the KKK. Just a little heads up. That still may be happening, but they've been, I, I just got back into town and they're giving us a bit of a runaround. 
and they, they've changed their voicemail message from last time, and it's I may play it on Sunday's episode. I wouldn't even play it. There had to be severe trigger warnings because it's just it's so vile and disgusting. Perverted, yeah. What they said on their what they say on their answering machine now. But as of now, even though the as you heard in last week's voicemail, they they promised to do an interview and just schedule a time. Well, twice so far we have scheduled that time and sat down waiting for the call and it never came. So uh, we've got some other people that we're, we're on the line with. We're hoping to interview, and we've got a lot of new information we're still looking at putting out into this week. So as of right now, we're recording this. It's Wednesday at noon, and we don't know exactly what Sunday's episode is going to be about. So I'd love to give you a teaser, but I can't yet at this point. So make sure you tune in on Sunday. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Executive producer is Mike Bussing. All music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Amanda Meyer for designing and creating the Friday follow-up logo. Thank you to our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Hoyt, and Sarah Mueller. Thank you to Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website. Keep sending in your thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at TruthAndJusticePod.com. Like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. But you don't usually hold on. But you don't usually hold it by that. Bl- but you don't usually. Zach attack. <laughs> in the trailer, when we were examining the crime scene back in season two. Yeah. Why? Are you, why are you whispering? Well, it's too late to mention that you're past it. So I'm going to delete what I just said there. I think you just say it. Oh 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.